Deceptions podcast. Hey, before we get going, we are nearing the end of our ninth season. And I want to take the opportunity to ask you, dear listener, to help us out. Underceptions thrives because of subscribers and donations. And if you want to see us continue and grow, can I encourage you to click subscribe on our website, underceptions.com. And for just $5 a month, That's $5 Aussie, so hardly anything really. You'll get loads of bonus material beyond this weekly podcast. Check out the details. And some of you may want to support us further with a gift. We could really do with it. It seems like more and more people are hungry for this podcast. We had 100,000 downloads just last month. Strictly speaking, 99,935 downloads, producer Kaylee tells me. And that means someone downloads Undeceptions every 30 seconds, which is a lovely thought for me as I go through the day. But the whole thing costs a bomb. The reason this thing sounds like it does isn't because of me. It's because of producer Kaylee, director Mark, researcher Al, engineer Rich, as well as social Sophie, online librarian Siobhan, and my personal assistant, Lindy. If you want to support this amazing team, please head to underceptions.com and click the oversized donate button. You really can't miss it. Thank you. Now for the fun. I turn on my computer... I go online. Welcome. Welcome. And my breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You got, got mail. mail. What is going on with you? Is it infidelity if you're involved with someone on email? This woman is the most adorable creature I've ever been in contact with. Have you had sex? Of course not. I don't even know her. Mm, you mean cyber sex? No. Well, you know what? Don't do it. Because the minute you do, they lose all respect for you. In a city where everyone's looking for someone, Joe and Kathleen have discovered the best way to meet someone <gasps> is to never meet at all. I love it. That, of course, is 1998 rom-com classic, You've Got Mail, starring Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks as a pair of real-life competitors who communicate, then fall in love through anonymous mail. Email. This is a great date at home couples night. I'm feeling a return in the Dixon home coming on. Did you know that there's a 1940s-ish, I don't know exactly when, movie that You've Got Mail is based on? It's called The Shop Around the Corner. Oh. And it's got Jimmy Stewart, and it's really lovely. Why didn't we include... And they actually write real-life letters, not email. Why didn't we include that? I don't know. Maybe because Mark didn't know about it. <laughs> nice. I thought I was doing well getting You've Got Mail in. <laughs> But more to our point today, it's a fun example of how down-to-earth, even old-fashioned technology can speak to the human heart. Yes, I think that email now ranks as old-fashioned. Before TikTok videos, WhatsApp or Snapchat, there was email. There still is. I know some of my listeners don't really do email, but it continues to be the cornerstone of modern communication. According to internet research firm the Radicati Group, the number of emails sent and received has increased every year since 2017. 
so that in 2021, there were almost 320 billion emails sent and received around the world every single day. If my maths is right, that's 3.7 million emails every second. Email has only been around since the early 1970s. And of course, the idea was built on the foundation of another millennia-old form of communication, the near-lost art of writing snail mail, letters. This tool goes back at least to the ancient Egyptians, who used clay tablets to transmit everything from personal greetings between royal families to military updates from faraway generals. The oldest letter collection we have is called the Amarna Letters. It's a few hundred clay tablet letters found in the city of Amarna in Egypt. They date from the 1300s BC. One of them, written from the Babylonian king to the Egyptian pharaoh, reads, When my father and your father had dealings in good friendship, they sent each other beautiful presents and nothing they refused. Now, please send me much gold and whatever you need from my land, write and it will be sent to you. Not sure how that went down. Not quite as ancient, but still pretty old is another collection of letters. Arguably, this is the most influential collection of letters ever penned. The collection of Cicero's letters was pretty influential. So was Pliny the Younger's hundred or so letter collection. But even these pale into insignificance when compared to the small letter collection of 21 or 22 written on papyrus by a small group of Jews in the first century named James, John, Peter, Jude, and Paul. Strangely, when you stop and think about it, this group of human letters was revered by the first Christians as the very word of God. I've often said how odd it is that the first four sacred books of the New Testament are biographies, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Christians are so used to reading these biographies that they assume that all holy books of the other religions are probably similar, but they're not. Christianity alone has the biographical form as the founding genre of its idea of the Word of God. But actually, letters are also a strange genre to claim to speak for God. After all, we know they were written by humans. We know their names, their dates. We know who received the mail. So I wanted to speak to an expert in ancient letter writing and ask the obvious question. Isn't it a bit weird that someone's ancient mail wound up changing the world and being read daily to this day as the very word of God? What does that tell us about the faith that produced and preserved these writings? How do we account for the humble letter becoming part of the bedrock of Christianity? I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions.
This season of Underceptions is sponsored by Zondervan Academic. Get discounts on master lectures, video courses and exclusive samples of their books at zondervanacademic.com forward slash Underceptions. Don't forget to write Underceptions. Each episode here at Underceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, philosophy, history, science, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. And with the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academic's new book, The Truth in True Crime, What Investigating Death Teaches Us About the Meaning of Life, by acclaimed cold case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. After years of investigating the causes behind deaths and murders, chasing leads and solving crime, Wallace decided to focus some of those same instincts on the most notable death in human history, the death of Jesus. And while a few of Wallace's cases remain open, unsolved mysteries, the death of Jesus obviously wasn't one of them. His investigation transformed him from atheist to believer. Many of us are hooked on the latest true crime podcast. I'm looking at you, my darling buff. But Wallace reckons there's more than mere entertainment to be found in some of the big murder mysteries of his career. The Truth in True Crime offers some of the lessons Wallace has learned about human nature from both his murder investigations and ancient biblical wisdom. It's a cool idea for a book. You can pre-order your copy of The Truth in True Crime by J. Warner Wallace now on Amazon, of course, or even better, head to zondervanacademic.com forward slash underceptions. Don't forget to write forward slash underceptions. zondervanacademic.com forward slash underceptions. Dr. Peter Head is an Aussie who, decades ago, found himself lured into the Narnia that is academia in Cambridge and Oxford. But somehow he remained thoroughly Australian. He taught at Cambridge University for years before moving to Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, more than a decade ago. But on his Oxford bio, he says Cambridge is, quote, probably the best university in the country, which I'm telling you at Oxford is the cruelest of quips. He also describes himself in his Oxford bio as famous for his fastidious tidiness, stylish dress and quirky sense of humour. And I'm pretty sure only one of those is true. For the last, I don't know, it seems like decade, Peter has been talking about, researching and writing about ancient letters and what that background might tell us about the most consequential letters ever written, the ones in the New Testament. I was in Oxford recently and popped over to his home in Cambridge. Yes, he chooses to live in Cambridge while teaching at Oxford because I wanted to pick his brains about all of this letter stuff. And so I got this email from the chaplain saying, she said to me she's 95% sure she wants to follow Christ. Wow. I was like, what? And so I emailed him a few days later to thank him for telling me that. 
And he said, oh, you'll never guess. Just yesterday, I, I prayed with her and she now is a follower of Jesus. Wow. Sorry, before we got going, I was just bursting to tell Peter about an email I'd received about a commander in the Defence Forces who'd been looking into the New Testament for a while and had just decided to become a Christian. It's just a tiny example of the ongoing impact of these ancient documents. Anyway, I eventually got to the point. Peter, what is a letter (laughs) in the ancient context? Is there an agreed definition? I mean... There pretty much is an agreed definition, but it has like seven parts. I mean, so a letter is a portable thing. It's written by a person to another person. Potentially, that could be multiplied, like two people to two people a group. But, you know, 95% of all ancient letters are individuals to individuals. Written on a portable material, transmitted from one place to another place, and with conventions about, you know... Dear John, comma. Now, the ancient letters have their their equivalent to that. John to George, greetings. I wish you very, you know, I wish you very healthy. I prayed daily before the gods or something. And then it goes into the body and then it ends with greetings. You know, George is with me, sends greetings, and I greet your family. And so, yeah, the conventional aspects of it in formatting and... But the key thing for like real letters is that they are sent from one place to another place. And obviously that has to be carried by somebody from one place to another place. So around those things is the definition of a, a letter. Mm-hmm. But obviously you have, you have sort of literary letters which look like they fit that, but maybe were never carried. Yeah. And then real letters which definitely were carried mm-hmm. and some we're not 100% sure about. So what sort of letters do we have? Okay, so even the definition of letter is complicated. But there is a basic idea behind one of the categories of letter. You know, letters are designed to communicate at a distance. So anything people wanted to communicate at a distance, you'll find them in letters. So that's one side. We have also letters within the manuscript tradition, i.e. that are copied, that come to us through the libraries of Europe, through somebody who's at some point gathered up Cicero's letters or Pliny's letters or, you know, more famous people, if you like. Famous people's letters are gathered up and copied and we get that, we get them through the manuscripts. Actually, I love Pliny's letter collection. I'm holding it in my hand right now. Verify, guys. Thank you. Yes, verified. We have over a hundred letters from this Roman governor of Pontus and Bithynia, and they are a goldmine of random bits and pieces about politics, geography, economics, love, disease, and even hunting. In one of his letters, Pliny tells a friend he takes books and notepads on hunting trips because when he's bored, waiting for the animal to show up, he jots down his thoughts on various projects. Less cool is his letter about arresting, torturing, and even executing the Christians of his region. More about that one day. And we get that, we get them through the manuscripts. The Greek documentary papyrus letters, we have the actual physical thing that was transmitted, sometimes still rolled up, you know, or preserved in the basement of a house with 13 other letters to the same person. So there's some exciting sort of connections that can be made. Can we talk about the physicality of it? What were their instruments? How did they write? On what did they write typically? So 
typically papyrus. That's where we get the word paper from, and it's a plant in Egypt, and you have two layers of it squeezed, you know, and they make, there's a whole industry in making papyrus and exporting it around the Greco-Roman world from Egypt, and cut into small pieces, only like a normal sort of page, I don't know. Not even an A4, though. Like Not even A4, like half an A5 would be normal. Often uh, enough reused, but that's a bit of a socioeconomic thing and an availability thing. So as that, in they rub it out and write over it? No, as in you've got some sort of city treasury keeps records of who owns which farm, yeah. and every 20 years they get rid of it, but that's on a roll, so the back of it is all plain. Mm. Somebody else can chop that up and reuse it for letters, got messages, it. all sorts of other things. Mm-hmm. Peter says we have over 6,000 letters in ancient Greek written on papyrus. I'm pretty sure he's studied every one of them. That might seem a lot, but it's a tiny percentage of the letters we know must have been written. It's one of the frustrating things about ancient history. I'm sure I've mentioned this before. Much less than 1% of the ancient material has survived for us to play with all these years later. This is partly because the materials were just thrown away. And every now and then, not often, but every now and then, we discover letters in a rubbish dump. The most famous rubbish dump is in the city of Oxyrhynchus, uh, Egypt, where nearly half a million fragments of discarded papyrus were found, many of them now stored in Oxford. Al will put a link in the show notes to a helpful little essay on the subject of letter preservation. And of course, if you want more from us on this, our very first episode of Undeceptions was called Old Papers, and it's all about these ancient papyri. There are other things, ostraca, which are broken pottery. Mm. So in parts of Egypt, especially where in the deserts where you don't even get much papyrus, you get a lot of broken pots. They were used even for quite big messages. In the north of the Greco-Roman Empire, and even we in Britain, we know because in up on Hadrian's Wall, we have wooden tablets. So very thinly sliced wood. Letters really started to take off in the Roman world of the first Christians because literacy rates were increasing at exactly that time. A couple of hundred years before, say Pliny, uh, the literacy rates in the Greek and Roman worlds was probably as low as 1% to 5%. By the time Pliny went to school, right around the time the New Testament Gospels and Epistles were written, something like 10-20% to of people could read and write, depending on which region we're talking about. Even still, most letters are super brief, less than a hundred words, or about the length of two tweets. So they often get straight to the point without much literary flair. Like this one, 82 words in Greek from 1 BC, written by a Roman soldier to his wife. I'm pretty sure I've read it to you before, but listen to this. Hilarion to Alice. Know that I am still in Alexandria. Do not worry if the army sets out. I am staying in Alexandria. I ask you and entreat you, take care of the child, and if I receive my pay soon, I will send it up. Above all, if you bear a child and it is male, let it be. If it is female, cast it out. You told Aphrodisius, do not forget me, but how can I forget you? Thus, I'm asking you not to worry. The 29th year of Caesar, Pauni 23. That's 17 June, 1 BC. Lots of letters, 
seem to not have been written physically by the person who mm. wanted to write them. We know that because you have a collection where there are six letters from the same person to the family, and they're all in a different handwriting. So they've obviously found somebody else to dictate the letter to, professional scribe on a market corner, or, or again, in a very wealthy family, they could have had people dedicated to that. So there'd be, in a sense, a slave economy of educated slaves who would be working in a literary way to speed up the process. Because letters, good letters, are written fairly slowly, so you can be easily read. Whereas just your accounts, the notes for yourself can be written very speedily. You can read it, but other people would find it more difficult. What about the pen? What, how, what was the pen? The normal pen is a, just a reed pen, Calamosta, so it's a reed, and it's hollow, and you can just easily sharpen the nib and dip it in your ink well and write. Papyrus actually comes, according to plenty, in, in multiple different quality standards. Mm. So now, most of that is not very observable in what we have because it's about surface and size and things like that. And people have cut letters up, you know, papyrus up to fit their letter size. Okay, so there's a tiny bit of it. It's like in the sense of the way that we write. If you write a postcard, you fill up your postcard. And you don't go over, but you might squeeze a bit in the bottom to, you know, make sure you fill it. And there's some evidence that, yeah, there's certain, if you have a small size, yeah, you can squeeze in bits. And a big size sheet of paper gets more greetings and they're sort of filling up. They don't want to, you know, not many letters are written on half a bit of papyrus and then the whole thing is sent, one or two. But I guess obviously you could chop it off again and use it again. So papyrus, ink, that's the normal one, yeah. And you mentioned secretaries. W- was that normal or only an elite practice? It's definitely not only elite. I think it'd be elite to have your own secretary, in a sense, either slave or employed to do it. That would be elite. But I think evidence is not sort of concrete, but evidence of multiple hands from the same person suggests, yeah, a lot of people could access people who could write well. So the normal thing, yes, people would sell that skill in the village, in the town, you know, and say, oh, yeah, go to Fred, he can write things and you give him some money to do it. And is that because it is such a technical skill or is it people actually, even people who could themselves write, preferred to dictate because it was a more, you know, verbal culture? Yes, plenty of people who obviously could write, because often we often get, as we also get in the New Testament, some final greeting or some final wish in a hand that's different from the main thing and that's universally thought to be the actual author writing something personal at the end. The Apostle Paul used dictation in several of his letters. At the end of his letter to the Roman Christians, we get a little hello from his amanuensis or secretary, I, Tertius, who penned this letter, send greetings. Paul also liked to send his own personal notes at the end of dictated letters. So at the end of his letter to the Colossians, Paul almost grabs the pen off his amanuensis and with his old chained hands, he writes, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. He does the same thing at the end of the letter to the Galatians. He writes, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand? He means he literally has to write with big letters, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, and so on, perhaps because he had poor eyesight. 
You don't get too many parallels to what Paul does in the sense of here's my signature at the end, and his, but you do get transitions at the end to a different hand. So everybody is, many people are using secretarial support. They don't say, oh, here's the secretary. You know, it's just, you need to look at the actual papyrus and see how the hand changes and things like that. For official letters, there was a postal service, the cursus publicus, the public course. Basically a system of runners and riders who could transport a letter about 80 kilometres or 50 miles in a day. For most mail, that's quicker than the public post today. In fact, just before this recording session, I'm back from the post office and it's taken more than a day for something to get from the post office to my home 500 metres away. Very frustrating. It's loose-leaf tea sent from Australia. But anyway, despite being called publicus, it wasn't really for the public. It was for state officials and elites, mostly. And the general public hated the fact that this postal system could requisition your donkey on the spot for an important message. Okay, so the letter is written. How do they get it from A to B? What was the postal service? Or was it mainly couriers? Yeah, it depends who you are. That is, it depends where you are in the sort of hierarchy of life and connectedness to Roman governance and uh, your own sort of household wealth, I guess, in a sense of personal careers. So we see at the elite end, people like Cicero, when he's functioning as a governor, he's using official resources to send letters back, which would be letter carriers. Marcus Tullius Cicero was one of Rome's greatest orators and authors in the century just before Jesus. We have more than 30 of his letters, and they provide invaluable information about the fall of the Roman Republic. He died in 43 BC. That's about 18 months after Julius Caesar was assassinated. His longing for the old Republic, instead of the dictatorship of Caesar and Mark Antony, eventually got him hunted down and killed. The assassin, a centurion named Herennius, cut off Cicero's head and hands and sent them back to Rome for public display. Mark Antony wanted those famous hands that had written so powerfully against him openly ridiculed. Anyway, that's probably too much information. Um, he, but he also has a large enough wealth and household to have people on the go all the time carrying letters or bundles of letters to and from Rome to wherever he is. Sometimes teaming up with his friends as well to take bigger bundles, but and sometimes teaming up in the travel so that groups go together. That's the one end, the, like elite end, where you've got dedicated people, high confidence of delivery, regular, almost daily opportunities to, to send and receive mail. The other end, like a normal village folk, if you like, they're using people, who are, especially in Egypt. So a lot of the evidence comes from Egypt simply because the papyri are preserved in Egypt. In Egypt, transportation is odd because it's all about the River Nile. And then, so it's all about who's going up and down the river. And if your friend's going up the river or down the river, depending on whether you're in Alexandria or further north, then letters will often say, oh, this person I've met is going up the river, so I'm quickly writing you a letter. Here it is. Maybe a letter which doesn't have much functioning to make contact. Merchants travelling up and down the river would be paid some money to transport the letter and some goods. And other times they'd just be friends or members of the family or wider household would be 
sometimes with business letters, there'd be people connected with the business in some way. Oh, there's an interesting letter where it says, you know, the seamstress will bring this letter and she's bringing two coats and three dresses and, you know, things like that. So sometimes letters do have the, exactly the formula, Georgios, who is bringing this letter to you? We'll do something else. We'll tell you more about us. We'll do... And other times, no, somebody is named with a letter without that, but it's obviously they are bringing the letter because they're traveling from there to here. So, and many letters in the papyri anyway, express a sort of uncertainty about, oh, well, will this get there? You know, and I've sent you eight letters and I've not heard a reply. You know, oh, you're so bad at writing. Here's a bundle of papyri to write back to me on. Or, you know, or, you know, the letter carriers can be back straight away. So quickly write a letter. At least tell me you're well, you know, that and desire for news, health, especially how the family is. That just normal kind of things are very prevalent. But there's an undercurrent of, epistolary uncertainty like will this get there will this work will this communicate unless there is a trustworthy courier and the sort of quest for a trustworthy courier is all over these letters mm. i couldn't find anybody you know and you never quite know i've tried to write a letter but the courier was obviously untrustworthy you know it's like i never received your email that's sort of, you know <laughs> which is like one of the, some of those little white lies you know that you're never quite sure of <laughs> how that works in antiquity. But the, yeah, there's a sort of, for the normal person, is not a farm labourer kind of person who maybe wouldn't write many letters, but a farmer or a very small business owner or any sort of thing like that. There's an undercurrent of uncertainty. It's interesting. How long was the average letter in the papyri? And then so, we'll talk about the sort of more formal letters. Pretty much all letters were one page of papyrus. Hmm. I mean, like 99... 0.5%, you know, they're, they're basically fundamentally one sheet of papyrus. It can be a big sheet or a small sheet, but they don't go over the back because they're folded up and the address goes on the back. Yeah. So you can't go over the back. But of course, then we get the big letters of Cicero, Pliny, and so forth. How long are they? And why are they so long? Yeah. So, well, there's a few different sorts of longer letters. So there are the like official proclamatory long letters, which are like a letter to a city or an emperor writes to Alexander. You know, some of those are in the form of a letter and were sent, but were designed to be displayed more and they're displayed more inscriptions, things like that, than obviously they were transmitted and then carved into an inscription sort of thing. And then people, it is true, people like certainly Cicero, he can write very long and involved letters. Now, we know about them through the manuscript tradition. We don't know really what they were like in their format. I think they'd be papyrus roll, like not multiple pages, but that that's what I think. But, I, you know, if you said, oh, defend that, what's the real concrete evidence? It's a bit more tricky. But I don't think we do have evidence for like a codex forming thing being formed out of you know, lots of little letters, lots of little pages put together that form from a notebook. That's sort of, kind of a slightly later first century thing. 
So I think of them as roles. The Codex is the ancestor of our modern book. It's basically papyrus leaves stitched together to form pages. And then the whole thing was bound in something sturdy like leather. They were a lot easier to handle. And the weird thing is, scholars have recognised that Christians were the first to popularise the use of the Codex instead of the multiple scrolls that was the norm. They didn't invent it, but they used it more than anyone else in those early centuries. Just by accident the other day, I came across an early reference to Christians and their codices. I was listing sources of early Christian persecution for one of my classes here at Wheaton College, and I came across a Roman transcript of the trial of Christians in Carthage, North Africa, around the year 180. The proconsul Saturninus interrogates a bunch of Christians, one of which was named Speratus. Saturninus demands, quote, what is that in your case? Speratus replied, and it's actually caught in the official record, books and letters of a righteous man named Paul. Pretty cool. Not so cool is how the transcript ends. Saturninus read his decision from a tablet. You are hereby condemned to be executed by sword. Speratus said, we thank God. The end. Whew. My point is though, as early as the second century, Christians were running around with codices, actual books containing the letter collection of Paul. Anyway, back to Peter and those papyrus scrolls. So I think of them as rolls rolled up and they would have they would have looked a bit more like and I think there's a crossover between a letter and a like a speech or something like that. People might declare and then copy out and preserve and sort of hand around to their friends and maybe somehow published in the sense of being accessible to people. Yeah, so can we talk about Pliny's letters then? Because they seem to traverse both real letter letters, because some of the replies are also in the collection, and yet they are clearly some of them performative. Yeah. What do you make of that collection? I don't know, how many letters do 150 Pliny letters or something like that? A lot of letters. Yeah, a lot of letters, although, and I haven't studied them in detail, but so I think Cicero sets it up. He's the stylist who's regarded as a good stylist. And even in his lifetime, he's already thinking about publishing a collection of his own letters. Right. Now, I don't think he gets to do that, but he's wondering about, oh, what needs to be slightly touched up in stylistic sense and which ones especially should be. Now, he dies in fairly tragic circumstances, suddenly in a sense, and so he doesn't do that. But his letters obviously are collected, preserved, handled, and become a sort of stylistic marker of great Latin style. And then later, people like Pliny does, seem to have an eye, even while writing, to the situation, but also to a wider inheritance. And so what future generations are going to think of it? Well, yeah, there's a connection. Pliny is obviously like early second century. I haven't focused on him. In my research, the difference between like a real personal directive letter and a somewhat more artificial or general or something written for posterity does sort of come in. And we have the same or like a related difference between letters that are, are they really letters? I mean, if you think of something like the Hebrews in the New Testament, we have this thing called the letter to the Hebrews. But it's not really a letter. It doesn't start like a letter. He calls it a word of exhortation. It's right? called a word of exhortation, which in Acts 13 is like a synagogue homily. You know, it's a sermon. 
it begins to look like a letter only at the end when you have greetings and wishes and uh, yeah, so it doesn't it doesn't begin with a sort of the letter there's nothing epistolary about the opening mm. well you could say the same thing about one john now two john three john they're like letters but one john no it's not like a letter so there is this whole distinction of oh well there are documents that we put into a broader category of letter that maybe on a strict definition wouldn't be in that category. One striking thing about the New Testament letters is their length. Cicero's letters, which were mostly quite stylized and formal letters, averaged only around 300 words each. Paul's shortest letter, Philemon, is 335 words. But most of Paul's letters are massive by ancient standards. The letter to the church at Rome, for example, is over 7,000 words. That's 90 minutes of public reading. Because, of course, most of Paul's letters were designed to be read out loud to the recipients. I want to focus on Paul now. In the New Testament. Paul in the New Testament. Because what you were just saying about some letters are at the kind of nexus of performative and real letters. Paul's letters are like that, right? In the sense that they're real letters, surely. But he must have had an eye to the future. Or do you think not? I think occasionally he has an eye to wider audiences, let's put it like that. Yeah. The indication of that, like in Second Corinthians, is addressed to Corinth, but all those in Achaia, you know, mm. the whole province. There are other Christians who will find this relevant. Mm. Oh, you find the end of Colossians. Oh, yeah, read the one... I said to later, see, and they'll read this. So that there are certain indications already of Paul thinking of wider audiences within his sort of uh, ambit. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. And I think he is, he is certainly working with pretty strict epistolary forms. Mm-hmm. Paul's letters always look like letters, mm-hmm. and yet um, radically adjusted with a, a significant freedom. I mean, Paul... A normal letter is just Paul to whatever, the Ecclesia in Corinth. But no, he's a Paul, an apostle by the will of God, you know, or a sermon, like Romans 1, you know, a sermon of the gospel, said, you know, the, what the gospel is, the gospel centers in Jesus, who Jesus is. And then only after about six lines you get, oh, to the Christians, to all God's beloved in Rome. So he's, he's using normal forms and adapting them significantly. And they're corporate Letters, right? Not letters to yeah. individuals. Is that unusual in antiquity? It's unusual in the sort of letters I've been talking about. It's less... So the corporate model has parallels in 
sort of ambassadorial letters and letters to whole cities, like official letters to cities. And some people, because Paul does himself use ambassadorial language, or ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 and things. There's a kind of interesting connection with that. Most of the time, yeah, the sort of letters I've been talking about, documentary letters on papyrus, Cicero. You get a bit more in Jewish letters, letters written to groups and things like that. But corporate letters to groups from an individual, one or two individuals, they are, yeah, that's not a normal thing in antiquity. So again, Paul's adapting a sort of existing format to to communicate. Again, because he's, dis- he's distant, if he's with the church, he can address them and solve, to try to solve the pastoral problem there. But letters are always because of distance. That's why you need a letter. Yeah. Letters were seen as a kind of substitute for a person's physical presence. And that's still true today, even in our totally digital world. My Josie, 17 years old and a complete digital native, absolutely adores getting written letters from a couple of her friends in Australia. She could be Snapchatting them every couple of days, but it's nothing compared to getting a lovely handwritten letter from some of her besties. Hi, Bella. G'day, Millie. A letter somehow conveys a person's presence. Maybe that's what Paul meant when he wrote to the Corinthians, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. Or to the Colossians, whom he'd never personally met. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit. Paul's letters were his authoritative voice and, in a sense, his presence. Theologically, Christians go one step further and say, as Christ's ambassador, Paul and his letters were actually Christ's own voice. But that's getting ahead of myself. There's one more interesting thing to unpack. Paul sent his letters, not via the Roman postal system, obviously, but by trusted couriers who may have acted as the first interpreters of Paul's words. And some of these fellows are perhaps mentioned, including one fellowette, the mysterious Phoebe, described as a deacon of the Church of Cancrea. So stay with us. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, Corruption and conflict have plagued communities like Kindu for decades, and access to quality education as a result is scarce. Schools around Kindu, one of the poorest parts of the DRC, are often dilapidated. They lack basic essentials like books or even teachers. Anglican Aid is looking to change that by making a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid you can play a crucial role in providing the tools and resources necessary to transform children's lives. Your donation will help workers on the ground in the DRC to rebuild classrooms, supply materials for students, and offer comprehensive training for educators. Already, there's been incredible progress. Five schools have been renovated, with over 600 students enrolled and thriving but there's still plenty to do. Please visit anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions to lend your support to an organisation Buff and I have long trusted. Help empower children 
to do what we frankly take for granted, chase their dreams and build a brighter future for themselves and their communities. Go to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions. Thank you. We are so grateful to our friends at Morling College for their support of the Undeceptions podcast. And they've just launched Morling To Go, a free series of short courses for you to explore key questions about the Christian faith, like why believe in God? That's a good one. How can a good God let bad things happen? Or simply, why Jesus? You can check out the free Morling to Go series and other study options hand-picked specifically for Undeceptions listeners. Just go to morling.edu.au forward slash Undeceptions. Morling, by the way, is spelt M-O-R-L-I-N-G dot E-D-U dot A-U forward slash Undeceptions. given us in return the aqueduct what the aqueduct oh yeah yeah they did give us that uh, that's true yeah. and the sanitation oh yeah the sanitation Reg. remember what the city used to be like yeah all right i'll grant you the aqueduct the sanitation are two things the romans have done and the roads well yeah obviously yeah. the roads i mean the roads go without sand don't they but apart from the sanitation the aqueduct and the roads irrigation medicine Education. Yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. And the wine. Yeah, yeah, that's something we'd really miss, Reg, if the Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly know how to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> all right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Brought peace? Oh, peace! Shut up! Monty Python's Life of Brian, reflecting humorously and accurately on some of the things the Romans gave us. And we might well add the Book of Romans, as in Paul's letter to the Romans. I mean, why not? Paul was a fully-fledged Roman citizen by birth. His letter was written to the fledgling house churches of the imperial capital. And this letter is probably Paul's most influential contribution to Christian scripture. And it had a massive impact on the Roman Empire itself. Romans is Paul's longest letter, and it contains his full-blown account of why his critics in Rome and elsewhere are wrong to say that Paul denies the Jewish foundation of Christianity. Wrong to say that Gentiles, that's non-Jews, should become Jews in order to become real Christians. And wrong to say that Christianity without scrupulous obedience to the law of Moses will lead to wrongdoing. Paul makes the brilliant case that his gospel is the one foretold in the Jewish scriptures themselves, that the Old Testament always looked forward to the pagan nations joining God's family, and that the new covenant promised in the Old Testament predicted a day when all nations could be forgiven through trusting the Messiah and become obedient, not through the law, but through 
faith. His opening lines are simultaneously an obvious ancient letter and a kind of theological masterpiece. Ready? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the nations to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those nations who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Boom. I love this so much. By the way, I once tweeted an explanation of the entire book of Romans, paragraph by paragraph in, I kid you not, 83 tweets. I obviously didn't have much on my hands at the time. But if you want to read my explanation of every paragraph of Romans, you can either go to my Twitter page at John Paul Dixon and hop into the Wayback Machine all the way to October 3rd, 2011. Yes, Twitter existed back then, researcher Al. I know that seems, you know, when you were just a little boy. Or we'll create a link in the show notes, won't we, Al, where you can read them all on one page. Anyway, Paul wrote Romans when he was in Corinth around the year 56. We can date Paul's life and letters with a fair degree of accuracy, actually. I imagine the whole thing took days, if not weeks, to compose, as Paul paced up and down, dictating his thoughts to Tertius. No doubt he'd sometimes stop and say, no, 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 scrap that, put it this way instead, and so on. Anyway, he eventually finished this masterpiece. Then what? Okay, so let's talk about the letter of Romans. Yeah. How did it get from Corinth or thereabouts to, to Rome? I mean, I know this is a big debate, but I'm talking with Peter Head, so you're just going to tell me the truth. How did it get there? And what did that person do with it once it was there? Okay, firstly, say in none of Paul's letters does he ever say, you know, Timothy, who is carrying this letter? We never get that. So, okay, that's fine. 100% uncertainty is not necessary there. But he does sometimes identify people and introduce them. Like in Romans, he introduces in Romans, the end of Romans, Romans 16 in our chapters, uh, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, deacon of the church of The exact passage is Romans 16, 1. I commend to you all our sister Phoebe, a diakonos, that means deacon or servant or minister, of the church of Cancrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Cancrea was a port city about 15 kilometres or 9 miles from Corinth. It's possible that's where Paul was staying at the time. But Phoebe herself is some kind of official in the local church, a deacon, a minister, a servant. Uh, And she's also described as a patron, prostatis. This is a word that can mean either guardian or benefactor. Of course, in the ancient world, benefactors of projects were simultaneously guardians in the broader sense. 
So this language of commendation is adapted from a certain type of letter, which is a letter of recommendation, a letter introducing people. In fact, we know Paul's quite accustomed to this. He refers, in fact, to that exact form in 2 Corinthians 3. And, and these were sort of everywhere in antiquity. People, you know, people traveling from one place to another had a letter of recommendation from somebody to somebody else. Please help them when they get there. So, and it's, it's 100%, 100% confident that those letters of recommendation were carried by the person who's commended. So Phoebe is carrying this letter, and I think Romans is like a long letter with this commendation at the end. Again, we have lots of examples of that. So yes, I think Phoebe is carrying the letter. We know she comes from Cancreas, port city, only a few miles from Corinth. She's going to Rome. She's carrying the letter from Paul. And that's what we do know. Was she traveling alone or in a group? We don't know. Quite likely within a group, just for protection, things like that. She's, Paul says, she's a, been a patron of many and of myself. So there's a sort of general thought that she must be a woman of means. Again, you can't attach that to a specific socioeconomic, but she can support Paul. She can support other people financially and in patronage and things like that. And she's been a deacon at church at Cancrea, so she's been used to, you know, ministering in a church. She will know the Corinthian situation. That's really a satellite town from Corinth. She's been through the Corinthian disunity, things like that. She's so she, she's a mover and a shaker. She can greet people. You know, she's used to handling lots of people and being a patron of many. So, and it's interesting, of course, in Romans 16, we know in the church in Rome, there are plenty of women involved and things like that. I think he's chosen somebody who may well have been traveling to Rome anyway or have, and have her own business when it says help her in whatever she needs. That's an absolute typical phrase from these recommendation letters, which are always vague and then left to the person to make a case. Many scholars today think that Phoebe was more than just a local church leader back in Cancrea. Paul chose her to read out the letter to the Romans, and maybe even to expound it. It's a cool thought. But Peter, being all into evidence and such, sort of hosed down my excitement. Sorry. I mean, that's the key thing I wanted to ask you. The whole point of Romans is to bring everybody together. Yes, indeed. And to hear a letter read. I mean, that is the thing about corporate letters. People aren't able to pour over it themselves. Maybe the elders of a congregation can. But these were, by definition, performative. Yes, they're part sermon in their, in their delivery. Sure. And so I want to ask you, you know, I mean, it's very common, especially amongst those who, like myself, love the thought of women being involved at the highest level in Paul's ministry. Very common to think Phoebe must have been the letter reader yeah. and first expositor. there to explain what Paul meant. I want that to be true. So is there any indication, you know, based perhaps on the background historical information we have, anything to indicate that might be the case? So if I can split those two things out, then I can say that in relation to being the reader, the lector, I found zero evidence in my study of letter carriers in, in antiquity of a letter carrier ever reading out a letter. Now, you might say, well, what would count as evidence for that? But you, which obviously would be a, an account where it was clear they would do that or some other, but the, so basically zero evidence. And evidence also against it because you have narrative accounts where somebody gets a letter 
and just goes off on her own and reads it and then comes back. From ancient analogies, in my own work, I don't think the letter carrier is the lector, the reader. Also, I don't think that fits with how Romans is structured, that you introduce Phoebe in chapter 16. If she's already been reading the first 15 chapters, it's a very weird moment to introduce the lector. So for those two reasons, internal evidence to Romans and the total absence of ancient analogies, I don't think of a, the letter carrier selector of Paul's letters. And also there's no indication within the letters that would be the case. So I, yeah, well, the first I know it's very popular among New Testament scholars, exceedingly popular, and it would be nice if it was true, but just to me, evidentially, no. No evidence, so I'm not going to go that way. Just let's not do that. Second, on the second account, what is the role of a letter carrier, especially one who's named within the letter as coming from the sender to the recipients? The role of a named letter carrier is always understood to be bringing more information, to be bringing a personal connection from the author to the recipients, to represent in some way the author to the recipients. And in that context, the commendation of Phoebe is precisely to do that. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, a deacon of a church. Okay, there's Paul's most high-level commendations of people are generally to his letter carriers in his letters. And that's a good example of him. So he's commending her as a representative of him who's bringing... So I think she does bring a lot more than his letter, see you tomorrow, because in a corporate setting, what has to happen is the person who does normally read in a gathering, a church gathering, these letters are long and, you know, they're tricky. They've got, you've got to have a bit of practice. You've got to read them. You've got to figure out the word division. You've got to figure out the movement of thought. You've got to... Now, Phoebe's on hand to help that. Phoebe also, I think, where she's introduced in Romans, right before the passage of Romans 16, which we call a passage of greetings. Yeah, but they're not actually Paul greeting people. It's their imperatives. You guys greet Priscilla and Aquila. You guys greet Andronicus and Junior. You guys greet Mary. You guys greet Apenitus. You guys greet all... You guys, it ends with, greet one another, yeah, with a holy kiss. So, so the whole point of those greetings are imperatival they're to get the church together we know that from its 14 there's kind of divisions judging condemning you know and really part of the whole point of romans is to create a unified people in rome christian people under the messiah together under the messiah who can you know be united church there and of course support mission to the west to spain to other things i think phoebe's introduced right there to be the facilitator. And again, she's introduced as the sort of person who can facilitate meetings, who can facilitate people coming together, patron of many, you know, that sort of thing. So I do think of her as integrally involved in helping the Roman church receive the letter in a way Paul wanted. And that's true, I think, of all the letter carriers. She, yeah, without being the lector, uh, I think she is, yeah, first <laughs> agent of helping the church receive it. Let's press pause. I've got a five-minute Jesus for you. I mean no disrespect, but Christian scripture is just weird. 
I mentioned earlier in this episode that the New Testament opens with four biographies. If you're a Christian listening, you're so used to this, you probably don't realize the oddness. If you're not a Christian and you pick up the New Testament, I'm sure you'll spot the weirdness immediately. Four biographies in a row about one person. That's the so-called Gospels. But if you keep turning the page, it doesn't get any more normal. After the book of Acts, a brief history of the 30 years after Jesus, you're confronted with about 20 pieces of ancient mail. The letters from church leaders like Paul to individual congregations like Thessalonica, or to groups of churches like the letter Peter wrote to Pontus, Bithynia and Galatia. No other religion has biographies or letters as founding scripture. Other religious books are collections of rules and rituals and philosophies and theologies. There's lots of God speaking in the first person, as in the Quran, from start to finish. But there's something so human about Christian scripture. The biographies tell you that this faith revolves around a person, Jesus, in a way that just isn't true of Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism or Islam. And the letters, more than 20 of the 27 books in the New Testament are letters. They also stress this personal dimension. The letters come from particular personalities. I mean, you can tell the difference in writing and thinking styles between, say, Paul in his letters and James, the brother of Jesus, who also wrote one of the New Testament letters. And the recipients are all different too. They're at different stages in their faith. They've got different problems and successes. There are the Philippians, right? A mature church. These guys had been joyfully backing Paul in his mission for more than a decade. The tone of that letter is mostly joyful, encouraging, overflowing with gratitude. But then there are the Corinthians. They're only five or six years into their Christian faith by the time Paul writes this letter we call 1 Corinthians. And they are a glorious train wreck. They're taking each other to court over various petty lawsuits. Some are visiting prostitutes. There are bickering cliques in the church. And someone in the church has even shacked up with his mother, or maybe his mother-in-law. The letter is the most interesting combination of pastoral kindness and ethical hard talk. Perhaps the funnest thing about this particular letter is that for all the mistakes these new Christians were making, and for all of the apostles' powerful moral exhortation, Paul still addresses these guys as real Christians, loved by God. That's the thing about biographies and letters. They keep everything very personal. And from the beginning, Christians said that this is the way God has chosen to speak to us in his new covenant. He wants us to fix our eyes on the perfect life, death and resurrection of Jesus in the Gospels and then learn how to live out this conviction in all of the messiness and disappointments of daily life. That's what we get in the epistles. And this is why, from the beginning, Christians were willing to die for this collection of biographies and letters. Earlier in the episode, I read from a Roman transcript of the trial of a Christian in Carthage. We have another transcript, this time from the Great Persecution. It's the year 303. 
The Roman authorities are trying to destroy Christianity on a large scale. And they begin with destroying church buildings and burning whatever copies of Christian scripture they can find. When they come to the North African town of Kurta in modern Algeria, they faced a stubbornness they weren't quite prepared for. The Roman curator of the city is named Felix. He tries his best to extract more books, codices, from a couple of lowly church ministers named Catalinus and Macaclius. Here's the transcript from 1720 years ago. Curator Felix, why have you given only one codex? Catalinus and Macaclius. We have no more, as we are subdeacons, but the readers, they have the codices. Curator Felix, show me the readers. Macaclius and Catalinus, we don't know where they live, which is surely a white lie. Curator Felix, if you do not know where they live, tell me their names. Catalinus and Macaclius, we are not traitors. Here we are, have us killed. Curator Felix, let them be taken into custody. And that's the last we hear of brave Catalinus and Macaclius. It was probably the last anyone heard of them. Throughout history, Christians have been willing to die for a book. In significant part, a book made up of biographies of their Lord and personal letters from his ambassadors. If it's been a while since you've opened a New Testament, why not give it a go and see if you find in these ancient biographies and letters that you can hear God himself speaking to you personally. You can press play now. Stepping back from the history to a more theological reflection, is it weird that a significant portion of Christian scripture is this very ordinary human epistolary form of writing? It really is weird. I mean, weird in a sense, yeah, if you look at the Old Testament, it's weird to have... Or any other scripture. Or other types of scriptures. And if you think about the New Testament, it's not only Paul, but it is all these other letters of James and John and Peter. And even the book of Revelation is fundamentally, in one sense, epistolary and based on letters. Firstly, yes, the New Testament is really epistolary. That is pretty remarkable. I think it's about distance so and lack of centrality that Judaism, it's all about Jerusalem and you know the temple. And, and in early Christianity, it's not. It's all about dispersion and it's all about mission. And it's all about actually extending things further and further so that gospel is preached, churches are established. I think as well, it's about, you know, if you think of Paul, it's about, he's not a conversionist. I mean, yes, he loves it when people come to believe in Jesus, but he's a church planter, a church grower, a deep, he's always talking about maturity, depth. Letters are, you know, pastoral follow-up and instruction and urging and, you know, keep going in the way you were taught, that sort of thing. And I think, again, letter carriers have a role in just exhibiting, here is a Christian person walking in my way. Talk to them, hear them, learn from them. So I think it's weird in antiquity, but I think it's a product of what early Christianity was, of an outward-looking missionary dispersed sort of movement without a total centre, a geographical, or you know. Mm. So you've got certain sort of centres, like Ephesus Centre and others, but not a single centre. So... 
it's both weird and very character, and not only New Testament, because if you carry through um, letters, you know, the Apostolic Fathers, there are letters, and you don't get very far in third and fourth century, but thousands of letters from, you know, Jerome and Augustine, you know, letters become a real important thing in early Christianity. Yeah. The Apostolic Fathers that Peter just mentioned, by the way, are a little collection of letters from the period immediately after the Apostles. We have a letter from Clement, the head of the church in Rome, to the church in Corinth. This is from about the mid-90s AD, so only a generation after Paul himself. We have a handful of letters from Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch, to churches in Asia Minor, that's Turkey, and they're all from about AD 115. The letter-writing tradition of the apostles just continued on after the New Testament period. There are literally hundreds of these letters over the next few centuries. But what's fascinating is that these letters of Clement and Ignatius and others make no claim to be writing scripture. In fact, they both look back on the apostolic letters of the New Testament as the gold standard, as the authoritative account of what it means to live Christianly. I think this letter-writing tradition in Christianity is wonderful. But for some, it's a stumbling block. Our um, Muslim friends, I've heard them say that this is one of the reasons the New Testament can't be scripture. Because, because it's this human genre. It's so clearly human and therefore, you know, frail. There's not much thus saith the Lord. Does that sort of critique ever worry you or do you find something nourishing about the epistolary form? I mean, I suppose you could say that it's it's analogous to the biographical form of the Gospels that- Which is also weird. Which is also weird, but in a sense, the incarnation delivers a human Jesus who dies for us on the cross and is raised from so that so that the gospel form figures out. And the epistolary form is a yeah, human commu- form of communication that's adapted for pastoring churches, encouraging Christians, preaching the gospel to some degree, but preaching might also be more of an oral thing. There's a bit of thus says the Lord in the letters. I mean, I wouldn't say they're not thus says the Lord. They're, the, this is why I'd say I, I draw a distinction between the sort of letters I imagine Paul writing quite often in a non, I'm the apostle, you know, just more in a, oh, where are we going next? What are we, who's praying for who? Well, you know, I'm trying to get to Ephesus and I can't find a boat. You know, that's, you know, like concrete things that I imagine there was a lot of, or perhaps messengers carrying those things. And there's a distinction between that type of letter and the, no, I am Paul, I am an apostle, God's chosen me, this is my, you know, message to your, and in that sense, in the same way Paul has a confidence in the letter that is a bit different from antiquity, that he really thinks the letter can communicate divine truth, that he thinks it is a good vehicle because he can't get back to it, because he's not there, because he's somewhere else. He thinks it is an appropriate vehicle. It's, and obviously, yeah, it's interesting. So I don't think, yes, I think it's a human genre and type and, yeah, I suppose the Christian view of the Bible is a bit different in that respect from the Muslim view of the Quran that, you know, Jesus is the perfect word. I mean, the Bible is the word of God, but it's the word of God through human 
situations for me. That's God speaking into lots of different situations, lots of different types of genre. And I think the I don't think it's a problem with a letter genre. I think it's the glory of a letter genre that that it can communicate at a distance all sorts of complexities. Yeah, fantastic stuff. If you like what we're doing here at Underceptions, you might like to become an Underceptions Plus subscriber. We call them our Underceivers for as little as $5 Aussie a month. You can get access to a private Facebook group to chat to me and other subscribers about the podcast. You can get bonus content from our episodes, lots and lots of bonus content. Head to underceptions.com forward slash plus to sign up today. If that's not for you, there's a bunch of other things you can do to support us, like head to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. Or why not go to underceptions.com and pick up one of our Underceptions t-shirts from the store. And while you're there, send us a question, either by audio or text, and I'll try and answer it in the upcoming Q&A episode. See ya. Underceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by Macuclius Hadley. That's a good reference, Mark. That means you're a really good guy willing to die for the scriptures. I'm ready to die for this show, I can tell you that. <laughs> Sophie Hawkshaw is on socials and membership. Alistair Belling is a writer and researcher. Siobhan McGuinness is our online librarian. Lindy Leveston remains my wonderful assistant. Santino DeMarco is Chief Finance and Operations Consultant, editing by Richard Humwee. Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan, for making this Undeception possible. Undeceptions is the flagship podcast of Undeceptions.com, letting the truth out. Deceptions Podcast.